Chapter Fifteen, Part Four of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingston: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingston, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Fifteen, Part Four. Homeward Bound, Livingston's Last Words, The Final Farewell. On the 12th of April, after six hours of the weariest march I had ever undergone, we arrived at the mouth of the Makandakwa Pass, which out of the river debouches into the plain of Makata. We knew that it was an unusual season, for the condition of the country, though bad enough the year before, was nothing compared to this year. Close to the edge of the foaming, angry flood lay our route, dipping down frequently into deep ditches, wherein we found ourselves sometimes up to the waist in water, and sometimes up to the throat. Urgent necessity impelled us onward, lest we might have to camp at one of these villages until the end of the monsoon rains. So we kept on, over marshy bottoms, up to the knees in mire, under jungly tunnels dripping with wet, then into sloughs, armpit deep. Every channel seemed filled to overflowing, yet down the rain poured, beating the surface of the river into yellowish foam, pelting us until we were almost breathless. Half a day's battling against such difficulties brought us, after crossing the river, once again to the dismal village of Mavuni. We passed the night fighting swarms of black and ferocious mosquitoes, and in heroic endeavors to win repose and sleep, in which we were partly successful, owing to the utter weariness of our bodies. On the thirteenth we struck out of the village of Mavumi. It had rained the whole night, and the morning brought no cessation. Mile after mile we traversed, over fields covered by the inundation, until we came to a branch riverside once again, where the river was narrow, and too deep to ford in the middle. We proceeded to cut a tree down, and so contrived that it should fall right across the stream. Over this fallen tree the men, bestriding it, cautiously moved before them their bales and boxes. But one young fellow, Rojab, through overseal or in utter madness, took up the doctor's box which contained his letters and journal of his discoveries on his head, and started into the river. I had been the first to arrive on the opposite bank, in order to superintend the crossing. When I caught sight of this man walking in the river with the most precious box of all on his head, Suddenly he fell into a deep hole, and the man and box went almost out of sight, while I was in an agony at the fate which threatened the dispatches. Fortunately he recovered himself and stood up, while I shouted to him, with a loaded revolver pointed at his head, Look out! Drop that box, and I'll shoot you! All the men halted in their work while they gazed at their comrade, who was thus imperiled by bullet and flood. The man himself seemed to regard the pistol with the greatest awe, and after a few desperate efforts succeeded in getting the box safely ashore. As the articles within were not damaged, Rojab escaped punishment, with a caution not to touch the box again on any account, and it was transferred to the keeping of the sure-footed and perfect Pagazi, Maganga. From this stream in about an hour we came to the main river, but one look at its wild waters was enough. We worked hard to construct a raft, but after cutting down four trees and lashing the green logs together and pushing them into the whirling current, we saw them sink like lead. 
We then tied together all the strong rope in our possession, and made a line one hundred and eighty feet long, with one end of which tied to his body, Chowpra was sent across to lash it to a tree. He was carried far down the stream, but being an excellent swimmer, he succeeded in his attempt. The bales were lashed around the middle, and, heaved into the stream, were dragged through the river to the opposite bank, as well as the tent, and such things as could not be injured much by the water. Several of the men, as well as myself, were also dragged through the water, each of the boys being attended by the best swimmers. But when it came to the letter-boxes and valuables, we could suggest no means to take them over. Two camps were accordingly made, one on each side of the stream, one on the bank which I had just left occupying an ant-hill of considerable height, while my party had to content itself with a flat, miry marsh. An embankment of soil nearly a foot high was thrown up in a circle thirty feet in diameter, in the center of which my tent was pitched, and around it booths were erected. It was an extraordinary and novel position that we found ourselves in. Within twenty feet of our camp was a rising river, with flat, low banks. Above us was a gloomy, weeping sky. Surrounding us, on three sides, was an immense forest, on whose branches we heard the constant, pattering rain. Beneath our feet was a great depth of mud, black and loathsome. Add to these the thought that the river might overflow, and sweep us to utter destruction. In the morning the river was still rising, and an inevitable doom seemed to hang over us. There was yet time to act, to bring over the people with the most valuable effects of the expedition, as I considered Dr. Livingston's journal and letters, and my own papers, of far greater value than anything else. While looking at the awful river an idea struck me that I might possibly carry the boxes across, one at a time, by cutting two slender poles and tying cross-sticks to them, making a kind of hand-barrow on which a box might rest when lashed to it. Two men swimming across at the same time holding on to the rope, with the ends of the poles resting on the men's shoulders, I thought, would be enabled to convey over a seventy-pound box with ease. In a short time one of these was made, and six couples of the strongest swimmers were prepared, and stimulated with a rousing glass of stiff grog each man, with a promise of cloth to each, also, if they succeeded in getting everything ashore undamaged by the water. When I saw with what ease they dragged themselves across, the barrow on their shoulders, I wondered that I had not thought of the plan before. Within an hour of the first couple had gone over, the whole expedition was safe on the eastern bank and at once breaking camp we marched north through the swampy forest, which in some places was covered with four feet of water. Seven hours' constant splashing brought us to Rehenko, after experiencing several queer accidents. We were now on the verge only of the inundated plain of the Makata, which, even with the last year's rain, was too horrible to think of undertaking again in cold blood. We were encamped ten days on a hill near Rehenko, or until the twenty-fifth, when, the rain having entirely ceased, we resolved to attempt the crossing of the Makata. The bales of cloth had all been distributed as presents to the men for their work, except a small quantity which I retained for the food of my own mess. But we should have waited a month longer, for the inundation had not abated four inches. However, after we once struggled up to our necks in water, it was useless to turn back. For two marches of eight hours each, we plunged through slush, mire, deep sloughs, water up to our necks, and muddy cataclysms, swam across nullahs, waded across gullies, and near sunset of the second day arrived on the banks of the Makata River. 
My people are not likely to forget that night. Not one of them was able to sleep until it was long past midnight because of the clouds of mosquitoes, which threatened to eat us all up. When the horn sounded for the march of another day, there was not one dissentient amongst them. It was five a.m. when we began the crossing of the Makata River, but beyond it for six miles stretched one long lake, the waters of which flowed gently towards the Wami. This was the confluence of the streams. Four rivers were here gathered into one. The natives of Kigongo warned us not to attempt it, as the water was over our heads, but I had only to give a hint to the men, and we set on our way. Even the water, we were getting quite amphibious, was better than the horrible filth and piles of decaying vegetation which were swept against the boma of the village. We were soon up to our armpits, then the water swallowed to the knee, then we stepped up to the neck and waited on tiptoe, supporting the children above the water, and the same experiences occurred as those which we suffered the day before, until we were halted on the edge of the little makata, which raced along at the rate of eight knots an hour but it was only fifty yards wide, and beyond it rose a high bank and dry parklands which extended as far as Simbo. We had no other option than to swim, but it was a slow operation. The current was so swift and strong. Activity and zeal, high rewards, presence of money, backed by the lively feeling that we were nearing home, worked wonders, and in a couple of hours we were beyond the Makata. Cheery and hopeful, we sped along the dry, smooth path that now lay before us, with the ardor and vivacity of heroes, and the ease and power of veterans. We rolled three ordinary marches into one that day, and long before night arrived at Simbo. On the twenty-ninth we crossed the Ungrangeri, and as we came to the Simbamweni, the lion city of Usagaha, lo, what a change! The flooded river had swept the entire front wall of the strongly walled city away, and about fifty houses had been destroyed by the torrent. Villages of Waraguru on the slopes of the Uruguru Mountains, Makambaku Range, had also suffered disastrously. If one-fourth of the reports we heard were true, at least a hundred people must have perished. The Sultana had fled, and the stronghold of Kabengo was no more. A deep canal that he had caused to be excavated when alive, to bring a branch of the Ungerangeri to his city, which was his glory and boast, proved the ruin of Simbawamweni. After the destruction of the place the river had formed a new bed, about three hundred yards from the city. But what astonished us most were the masses of debris which seemed to be piled everywhere, and the great numbers of trees that were prostrate, and they all seemed to lie in the same direction, as if a strong wind had come from the southwest. The aspect of the Ungerangeri Valley was completely changed. From a paradise it was converted into a howling waste. We continued our march until we reached Olagala, and it was evident as we advanced that an unusual storm had passed over the land, for the trees in some places seemed to lie in swaths. A most fatiguing and long march brought us to Musudi, on the eastern bank of the Ungerangeri, but before long we reached it we realized that a terrific destruction of human life and property had occurred. The extent and nature of the calamity may be imagined when I state that nearly one hundred villages, according to Masudi's report, were swept away. Masudi, the Diwan, says that the inhabitants had gone to rest as usual, as they had done ever since he had settled in the valley twenty-five years ago, when, in the middle of the night, they heard a roar like many thunders, which woke them up to the fact that death was at work in the shape of an enormous volume of water, 
that like a wall came down, tearing the tallest trees with it, carrying away scores of villages at one fell, sure swoop, into utter destruction. The scene six days after the event, when the river has subsided into its normal breadth and depth during the monsoons, is simply awful. Wherever we look, we find something very suggestive of the devastation that has visited the country. Fields of corn are covered with many feet of sand and debris. The sandy bed the river has deserted is about a mile wide, and there are but three villages standing of all that I noticed when en route to Unyanyembe. When I asked Masudi where the people had gone to, he replied, God has taken most of them, but some have gone to Udo. The surest blow ever struck at the tribe of the Wakami was indeed given by the hand of God, and to use the words of the Diwan, God's power is wonderful, and who can resist him? I again resort to my diary and extract the following. April 30th. Passing Musuwa, we travelled hurriedly through the jungle which saw such hard work with us when going to Unyanyembe. What dreadful odours and indescribable loathing this jungle produces! It is so dense that a tiger could not crawl through it. It is so impenetrable that an elephant could not force his way. Were a bottle full of concentrated miasma, such as we inhale herein, collected, what a deadly poison, instantaneous in its action, undiscoverable in its properties, would it be? I think it would act quicker than chloroform, be as fatal as prussic acid. Horrors upon horrors are in it. Boas above our heads, snakes and scorpions under our feet. Land crabs, terrapins, and iguanas move about in our vicinity. Malaria is in the air we breathe. The road is infested with hot-water ants, which bite our legs until we dance and squirm about like madmen. Yet somehow we are fortunate enough to escape annihilation, and many another traveller might also. Yet here, in verity, are the ten plagues of Egypt, through which a traveller in these regions must run the gauntlet. 1. Plague of Boas. 2. Red ants or hot water. 3. Scorpions. 4. Thorns and spear cacti. 5. Numerous impediments. 6. Black mud knee-deep. 7. Suffocation from the density of the jungle. 8. Stench. 9. Thorns in the road. 10. Miasma. May 1st. Kingaru Hera. We heard news of a great storm having raged at Zanzibar, which has destroyed every house and every ship, so the story runs, and the same destruction has visited Begamayo and Winde, they say. But I am by this time pretty well acquainted with the exaggerative tendency of the African. It is possible that serious loss has been sustained, from the evidence of the effects of the storm in the interior. I hear also that there are white men at Bagamoyo, who are about starting into the country to look after me. Who would look after me? I cannot imagine. I think they must have some confused idea of my expedition, though how they came to know that I was looking for any man I cannot conceive, because I never told a soul until I reached Unyanyembe. May 2nd. Rosako. I had barely arrived at the village before the three men I dispatched from Mavuni, Ugogo, entered, bringing with them from the generous American consul a few bottles of champagne, a few pots of jam, and two boxes of Boston crackers. These were most welcome after my terrible experiences in the Makata Valley. Inside one of these boxes, carefully put up by the council, were four numbers of the Herald, one of which contained my correspondence from Unyanyembe, 
wherein were some curious typographical errors, especially in figures and African names. I suppose my writing was wretched, owing to my weakness. In another are several extracts from various newspapers, in which I learn that many editors regard the expedition into Africa as a myth. Alas, it has been a terrible earnest fact with me, nothing but hard, conscientious work, privation, sickness, and almost death. Eighteen men have paid the forfeit of their lives in the undertaking. It certainly is not a myth, the death of my two white assistants. They, poor fellows, found their fate in the inhospitable regions of the interior. One of my letters received from Zanzibar by my messenger states that there is an expedition at Bagamoyo called the Livingston Search and Relief Expedition. What will the leaders of it do now? Livingston is found and relieved already. Livingston says he requires nothing more. It is a misfortune that they did not start earlier. Then they might with propriety proceed and be welcomed. May 4th. Arrived at King Ware's Ferry, but we were unable to attract the attention of the canoe paddler. Between our camp and Bagamoyo we have an inundated plain that is at least four miles broad. The ferrying of our expedition across this broad, watery waste will occupy considerable time. May 5th. King Ware, the canoe proprietor, came about 11 a.m. from his village at Gongongi, beyond the watery plain. By his movements I am fain to believe him to be a descendant of some dusky king log, for I have never seen in all this land the attributes and peculiarities of that royal personage so faithfully illustrated as in King Ware. He brought two canoes with him, short, cranky things, in which only twelve of us could embark at a time. It was three o'clock in the afternoon before we arrived at Gongongi village. May 6th after impressing King Ware with the urgent necessity of quick action on his part, with a promise of an extra five-dollar gold piece, I had the satisfaction to behold the last man reach my camp at 3.30 p.m. An hour later, and we are en route, at a pace that I never saw equaled at any time by my caravan. Every man's feelings are intensified, for there is an animated, nay, headlong impetuosity about their movements that indicates but too well what is going on in their minds. Surely my own are a faithful index to their feelings, and I do not feel a whit too proud to acknowledge the great joy that possesses me. I feel proud to think that I have been successful, but honestly I do not feel so elated as at the hope that to-morrow I shall sit before a table bounteous with the good things of this life. How I will glory in the hams and potatoes and good bread! What a deplorable state of mind, is it not? Ah, my friend, wait till you are reduced to a skeleton by gaunt famine and coarse, loathsome food, until you have waded a Makata swamp and marched five hundred and twenty-five miles in thirty-five days, through weather such as we have had, then you will think such pabula food fit for gods. Happy are we that, after completing our mission, after the hurry and worry of the march, after the anxiety and vexation suffered from fractious tribes, after tramping for the last fifteen days through mire and Stygian marsh, we near Beulah's peace and rest. Can we do otherwise than express our happiness by firing away gunpowder until our horns are emptied, then shout our hurrahs until we are hoarse than, with the hearty, soul-inspiring yambos, greet every mother's son fresh from the sea? Not so. Think the Wangwana soldiers— and I so sympathize with them that I permit them to act their maddest without censure. 
At sunset we entered the town of Bagamoyo. More pilgrims come to town, were the words heard in Beulah. The white man has come to town, were the words we heard in Bagamoyo. And we shall cross the water tomorrow to Zanzibar, and shall enter the Golden Gate. We shall see nothing, smell nothing, taste nothing that is offensive to the stomach any more. The Kirangozi blows his horn, and gives forth blasts potential as Astolfo's, as the natives and Arabs throng about us. And that bright flag, whose stars have waved over the waters of the Great Lake in Central Africa, which promised relief to the harassed Livingston when in distress at Ujiji, returns to the sea once again, torn, it is true, but not dishonored, tattered, but not disgraced. As we reached the middle of the town, I saw on the steps of a large white house a white man, in flannels and helmets similar to that I wore. I thought myself rather akin to white men in general, and I walked up to him. He advanced towards me, and we shook hands, did everything but embrace. "'Won't you walk in?' said he. "'Thanks. What will you have to drink? Beer? Stout? Brandy? Ah, by George, I congratulate you on your splendid success,' said he impetuously. I knew him immediately. He was an Englishman. He was Lieutenant William Henn, R.N., chief of the Livingston Search and Relief Expedition, about to be dispatched by the Royal Geographical Society to find and relieve Livingston. The former chief, as the expedition was at first organized, was Lieutenant Llewellyn S. Dawson, who, as soon as he heard from my men that I had found Livingston, had crossed over to Zanzibar, and, after consultation with Dr. John Kirk, had resigned. He had now nothing further to do with it, the command having formally devolved on Lieutenant Hen. A Mr. Charles New, also, missionary from Mombasa, had joined the expedition, but he had resigned, too. So now there were left but Lieutenant Hen and Mr. Oswell Livingston, second son of the doctor. "'Is Mr. Oswell Livingston here?' I asked, with considerable surprise. "'Yes, he will be here directly.' "'What are you going to do now?' I asked. "'I don't think it will be worth my while to go now. You have taken the wind out of our sails completely.' If you have relieved him, I don't see the use of my going. Do you? Well, it depends. You know your own orders best. If you have come only to find and relieve him, I can tell you truly he is found and relieved, and that he wants nothing more than a few canned meats and some other little things which I dare say you have not got. I have his list in his own handwriting with me. But his son must go anyhow, and I can get men easily enough for him. Well, if he is relieved, it is of no use my going." At this time walked in a slight, young, gentlemanly man, with a light complexion, light hair, dark, lustrous eyes, who was introduced to me as Mr. Oswell Livingston. The introduction was hardly necessary, for in his features there was much of what were the specialities of his father. There was an air of quiet resolution about him. In the greeting which he gave me he exhibited a rather reticent character, but I attributed that to a receptive nature, which augured well for the future. I was telling Lieutenant Hen that, whether he goes or not, you must go to your father, Mr. Livingston. Oh, I mean to go. Yes, that's right. I will furnish you with men and what stores your father needs. My men will take you to Unyanyembe without any difficulty. They know the road well, and that is a great advantage. They know how to deal with the Negro chiefs, and you will have no need to trouble your head about them, but march. The great thing that is required is speed. Your father will be waiting for the things." I will march them fast enough, if that is all. Oh, they will be going up light, and they can easily make long marches. It was settled then. 
Hen made up his mind that, as the doctor had been relieved, he was not wanted. But, before formally residing, he intended to consult with Dr. Kirk, and for that purpose he would cross over to Zanzibar the next day with the Herald expedition. At two a.m. I retired to sleep on a comfortable bed. There was a great smell of newness about certain articles in the bedroom, such as haversacks, knapsacks, portmanteaus, leather gun cases, etc. Evidently the new expedition had some crudities about it, but a journey into the interior would soon have lessened the stock of superfluities, which all new men at first load themselves with. Ah, what a sigh of relief was that I gave, as I threw myself on my bed, at the thought of, Thank God, my marching was ended. End of chapter 15, part 4